0: We have had quite a run on responses regarding supermarket etiquette, uh, and this one is so crazy. It's so crazy I thought we had to um, talk to them. Ari kia ora. welcome to the panel.
1: Hi there, Wallace.
0: What did you see?
1: Well, I was in the supermarket looking in the tissue sort of section, but there was a gentleman who looked quite a fitness buff, bit of a bandana on his head and he was like sniffing the male deodorants to check them out and then the next thing he just like picked off the lid and sprayed it all over his underarms and gave himself a good dosing of male deodorant and then popped the lid back, put it on the shelf and walked away I was a little bit horrified
0: I'm pretty speechless, shocking (laughs) And, and, and he had a bandana bandana on of course Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Did mm. you or anyone go up to him?
1: No, I just I was just like embarrassed. I just sort of rolled my eyes and kept on walking. <laughs> it was just, yeah, he was a little bit testosterone-filled as well, okay. so not really wanting to approach. No,
0: of course, no. It probably came yeah. in from the gym and uh, the ego just took yeah. the top of <laughs> Ellie, nice to have you on the program.
1: Okay, thank
0: you. Yeah, another one here. Uh, I witnessed someone biting into produce in a fruit and veggie shop to test it and then put it back. Wallace, I saw mm. a dude pop the stems off all the loose mushrooms. And before we go, just a quick one here for Sue Kedgley. I'm just wondering, says Susan, why Sue reckons the Greens wouldn't work with National? If the Nats were in government, wouldn't it be good
2: for the environment if they had the Greens to advise on issues? Oh, they certainly would, I'm sure, work with them on policy. I thought that, that he was meaning go into coalition with them. Was, wasn't he? Well, you'll have to ask yeah. uh, have to ask that one to the Greens, but yeah. um, I think they've ruled it out.
0: Yep. Yeah.
2: Uh, the panel
0: in uh, Z National, we have Sue Kedley and Stephen Franks with me this afternoon. The country needs to build fifty one thousand homes a year. For the next five years to meet demand, we need to build like the boomers. Now that is what ACT leader David Seymour said. To reach this target, ACT would scrap the Natural and Built Environment Act, which replaced the Resource Management Act, RMA 1991 last month. With us, John Turkey, who is a professor in construction management at AUT. Professor Turkey, welcome. Good evening. Scrapping consents Bold call here. How do you read this? Uh,
3: is it doable? Yeah, it's doable. You're just um, transferring the risk to the uh, the players who are most capable of being able to take it. So instead of um, getting counsel to yay or nay a design in terms of detail, you actually get the producers. We already have producer statements for uh, different consultants and different specialists who do their different tasks. Um, all we're doing is just eliminating the... Um, the the council component and you've got to bear in mind that councils have been subject to massive risk exposure courtesy of their inter their engagement with uh, aspects of um, consent related to uh, leaky building for example Um, and you know they're not really well suited to take the risk. Yeah, okay. as, as right, players, you
0: know. Well, that is the one issue that people have a um, problem with uh, on the text, and that is when they hear the scrambling of consents, they hear leaky building. Is that fair or not?
3: Um, yeah, and this is this is why it needs to be carefully uh, expressed. I, I mean, you know, I'm not a political wonk at all. It's not my thing, but uh, but actually, it's not that dumb a, uh, an idea in terms of uh, the outcomes that you're seeking to do. You're transferring the if you if you if you have um, individual providers, whether they be designers, engineers, um, you know, builders, whatever, and they have indemnity insurance and they are fully paid up and all the rest of it, in effect. Um, you 're transferring the risk instead of transferring the risk to councils where they have the final sign off yeah uh, you 're you're, you're getting the risk to sit with uh, with um, insurance uh, entities, and insurance entities are much better um, in terms of their understanding of risk to be able to cope with it
0: okay well okay Th- that sounds fair doesn 't it sue uh,
2: we'll look at all s- using insurance as an alternative to building consent authorities well Can we point to anywhere else in the world where changes like, you know, ideas like these have worked? It sounds extremely pie in the sky and experimental. But, Wallace, can I just also zero in on one aspect of ACTS policies? They say in their estimate, they're working out why we need 51 new homes, 1,000 new homes a year. They say, we estimate that 10,000 houses will be 100 years old each year and will need replacement. Oh, is, it incri- is is ACT proposing to demolish all 100-year-old homes? I mean, I live in a 115-year-old wooden home. It's solid, well-built. It'll last for another 100 years, unlike a lot of modern homes, which are sort of built for a 20- to 50-year lifespan. Is life that span. how you
0: read it? Is that really how you read it? Well, okay, that's what it said. We 10,000
2: houses will be 100 years old each year and will need replacing. Why? They're John. much more sustainably built than most of these modern in- ones. Interestingly,
4: they were built without council taking the risk on the inspection. They were built, if you go in and look for the plans, it's, it's often drawn, it's drawn on, on one page, and all it does is show the outline of where the house is going on the section. But they and were so, built to last. Yeah, but they were built without Not any... Just for they were just Of course they were built for profit. Who did you think was going, going to take the risk right. on building those? But anyway, that's... Well, I was going to answer that if you wanted a precedent, you'd just go back in New Zealand's history when, in fact, we, we had houses typically at about three to four times the annual annual income. Um, now they that, now that are still up at six, seven. So I, I think it sounds like a really sensible idea. Is, is it may be difficult to get insurers who would be around in 20 years, so mm. it might be that you recognise that there will be houses that fail and you then compare that with what we've got, which is 16,000 people in motels and you've got rentals at, at, at prices which are grotesquely out of people's affordability range. So yes, I would say that one of the consequences will be more buildings that people will say are second rate, but uh, I'd rather live in a second rate home than in a motel. <laughs>
0: Oh, is that's, there that would, that would be controversial, John, because can I just start bringing John Tukey on this because um, you'd rather live in a second-rate building than a motel, but you know what? Some might say, John, when you look around Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland, some of the new builds that are going up right now, you wonder if they'll last 20 10 years. years. I don't know about you, but really some of the design is quite something. Uh, well,
3: the, the, there's good and bad in all, and you've got to bear in mm-hmm. mind that when it comes to building code, um, so, the, in terms of the Building Act, basically it specifies the minimum legally uh, allowable standard um, of of construction. So we're not talking about a stretched target. That having been said, there are ways and means of being able to improve the housing stock as we go along. I have when uh, when somebody comes and says that you know hundred-year homes are going to be demolished. No, no, it's not that. There, are, on average, there are um, there are a, a particular rate of loss per annum as a result of degradation over a period of years. I mean we can point to 50 year old houses that are in a complete state and need to be pulled but um, notwithstanding which um, when you look at um at what 's being proposed having a having something like for example the n h b c type of um, scheme that they have in the u k where right. you are where um builders are bonded and they are uh, they ha they pay into a scheme which basically guarantees rectification of defects over a twenty five year p- period and you can um, you know you can you can actually take to the bank quite literally the fact that you've got an NHBC certificate and get the appropriate uh, you actually get a a bonus or benefit in terms of your insurance uh, contributions on uh, household um, insurance as a result of having a higher quality better quality build and you can you can use it for uh, improving the value of the house going forward when you resell down the track you know having these sorts of schemes is no bad thing and at the moment there's, there's a couple of schemes with, through the likes of the um, Master Builders, through the likes of uh, NZ um, Certified Builders, um, but they're not compulsory schemes. And they are, you know, as a result, we have an awful lot of um, pretty hit-and-miss uh, type of uh, developments taking right.
4: place. Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is the councils, it's totally unfair the liability they bear. And when someone's got no skin in the game, as they don't, they just put, put there and told to bear risk if it matures it's natural for them to gold plate and to insist on gross overbuilding. You mean our house is 120-something years old, uh, built without even galvanising, but when we put the garage addition on it, had to have everything stainless steel because somehow we're 200 or 300 metres from the sea. The place is, has stood up for 127 years without without even galvanising. Huh. And that, that, I understand the council stipulating all that,
0: very interesting. Hey, John Tukie, kia to thank you for your time. This is John Tukey, professor and a uh, construction management. Don't you both live in uh, some pretty uh, uh, Lovely <laughs> old, old houses? Old homes. Yes. What, 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 what can I ask? What sort of home are they? Are they uh, uh, what you'd call a villa,
4: both of you? So yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm never quite sure what a villa is because I yeah. thought it was one floor, but ours is three now. But they probably added bits on. They dug out the basement and we added a story on top. All on top of this really old wood. I don't know whether you'd be allowed to now. but
0: Yeah, certainly interesting, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, why, and that question you returned, to, don't you, why did those houses uh, just last for so long?
2: It's... I- brief word Sue? No, I was just going to say um, and, and the building materials they use. I mean a lot of them of course were built with kauri and so mm-hmm. forth, but I noticed that cladding, which of course a lot of houses are built with, it's got a 15 year lifespan. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know we should be looking at building houses with a 100 year lifespan. now you
4: could go like Japan, they only built for 50 years. It's interesting that Japanese expect their house to come down okay. and so their, their their cities turn over and, and, and improve and change more readily interesting
0: Uh, just a word on this I found this really interesting this uh, story a bag of New Zealand onions 95 pence at Tesco or two New Zealand dollars per kilo same onions $2.99 at countdown this reported by staff so 95 pence $2.99, nearly three bucks here and there are many examples, lamb, apples how could this be, how could something travel across the world and still be cheaper Uh, I know it gets the listeners up, this one Principal Economist at Cognitus Economic Insight, Dr Richard Mead, welcome Dr Mead
5: Thanks, afternoon
0: We. Why might we pay more at the checkout than an overseas shopper
5: a um, variety of possibilities there, Wallace, and it's probably easier to talk about it in terms of why they might be getting these things cheaper than we get them. Um, one explanation is that simply that the overseas markets have greater buyer power than the local supermarkets do in New Zealand because they're serving bigger markets, they can buy in bigger volumes, and they have better bargaining power, they get better prices um, when they're buying off our New Zealand producers. Um, Another sort of flip side of that is that the supermarket sectors might be more competitive than ours on retailing side, so as supermarket consumers we like to have lots of retail competition to keep uh, the retail price margins down, but the flip side is we want our supermarket chains to be very strong buyers so they can get the lowest possible input costs on their products that they buy from suppliers. Um, And so both of these are probably factors that are favouring the overseas markets um, relative to New Zealand because we're such a small market, basically. Um, There might be a a quirkiness in some of these products. Onions wouldn't be a good case, but there might be products that New Zealanders think uh, are particularly important to us and we have higher willingness to pay than overseas markets, so we might just just value them more. Um, and, And the one that's probably... Um, One that would seem really obvious but it's not, is the logistics or the transport side. We would say, surely if we're shipping stuff to the other side of the world or to another country it's got a greater travel distance and therefore you'd expect to pay more um, because of the transport costs, but if those markets are really big and they they get stuff shipped to them in bulk, and the logistics are just way more cost effective than shipping a small truck to New Zealand's town for example. Oh,
0: that kind of makes sense, Richard but stay there, let's get a response from both I know that Sue, you're quite strong on issues like food security nonetheless it does rankle doesn't it
2: well it does rankle but you know i would focus uh, probably possibly on the um, profit market profit margins that our supermarkets have been putting on because the com- commerce commissions said that the two supermarkets are super- were making excessive profits we've got probably the most concentrated super and therefore less competitive least competitive supermarket sectors in the world and really they could there's been no transparency, no rules, it's been the wild west supermarkets can put profit margins that they think they can get away with and uh, but, but one thing I would say is that we've now got this new grocery um, commissioner and the new supermarket code of conduct so I would ask surely this is going to uh, this sort of level of scrutiny and having some rules around why what supermarkets can, you know, the, the terms and conditions and, and right. profits they can, will, will this not help? Richard, can you just
0: stay there and I'll just get a response from Stephen, you can respond to both. Stephen Franks.
4: Well, I think Richard nailed it. Um, essentially, it boils down to competition and economies of scale in other economies, and um, the profits that any business makes will depend on whether it's in oligopoly or. In a position where it's not very doesn't have to compete strongly, Richard.
5: So. Uh, sure, indeed. I, I think um, that's right. And Just to talk about the, the excess profits the Commerce Commission yeah. uh, estimated for the New Zealand supermarkets, I think it was about four hundred and thirty million a year. So if you calculate that down to a um, New Zealand level, that's seventy eight dollars per uh, New Zealander per year, or a dollar fifty per person per week. Um, and I know small numbers add up, but in a sense, it's not there's not necessarily a huge profit margin and if you think about that, if it was, then that would make it much easier for another supermarket chain to set up and compete. So um, I think there's a, actually an incentive for the, the local supermarkets not to have to create an excess profit if they're going to have any um, simply because it would um, induce someone to end and and lead to more competition.
2: R- R- Sue, response? Well, um, you know... Th- if you just look at the latest uh, consumer New Zealand magazine, there uh, they've done talked to a whole lot of uh, suppliers and growers who are saying that they're they're putting on profit margins of thirty five to sixty percent. The other thing I found interesting in that study was it, even within New Zealand, for for example, you had a leg of lamb. And it was $33 at Countdown, 18 at New World, 32 at Pack and Save. You know, wh- why this huge variation even within our uh, supermarket yeah, chains? Yeah, can you explain that, Richard?
5: Um, one of the explanations that I'm aware of is that occasionally what happens is that the, the meat processors might end up with a container of lamb too much, they, they can't quite sell it and so they end up selling it at a cheaper price in the local market and it might be one particular supermarket chain that picks up the cheap container load um, so that could explain some of that variation. I wouldn't propose that that's the only explanation but um, that is something I'm aware of.
0: Very good Richard, thanks, to have you on. Uh, thanks for being on the programme. That's Dr Richard Mead who's a principal economist at Cognitus. Economic Insight. Uh, You're on the panel. Um, Happy Monday to you. Nice to have had you company this afternoon. We had Stephen Franks and Sue Kedley. And finally, this really got my attention, so I want to talk about it. A North Auckland couple would like the same rights as dog owners for walking their cats. Caitlin Smith and Darian Hearn walk their cats on a lead to protect wildlife, but their feline friends are not permitted in their local park, despite dogs being allowed on the track. With us is cat owner Caitlin Smith. Lovely to have you here, Caitlin.
1: Thank you so much. It's lovely being on air with you today.
0: Uh, Why have you trained your cats to go walking on a lead?
1: Well, look, it, it was honestly a bit of an interesting topic that my partner originally brought up when we first started looking at cats. We, um, it's not something I've ever really heard of, and my family cats were indoor-outdoor cats, and he was like, you know what, we need to be able to protect our wildlife, but also, you know, make sure our cats get that outdoor experience as well, but being safe in a harness so they can't go on h-
0: It's just, there, Caitlin, it's just practical before we hand, I'll mm-hmm. give it to your panellists. It's just practical. Um, no, she uh, just, just dropped off. We'll get Caitlin back. It does sound odd. Sue, about there are good motives behind it?
2: Yeah, well I have sort of a bit of mixed views about this uh, Wallace because the reality is that cats are predators of our precious birds and while it's true that while they're on a leash uh, presumably they're not going to go off and kill birds. Of course they're not. What happens if they, you know, get off the leash? I mean, and once you allow it for for all cat owners, there will be some who will um, let them off the leash. But, you know, on the other hand, it is, you know, why, if it's okay for dogs, you could argue, why isn't it okay for cats? Something for local councils to think about.
4: That's right, Stephen. I would have thought that Probably, it'd be very rare for someone to complain. I talked about this at at work, and we've got a colleague who's, he and his partner take their cat down to Titai Bay Beach, and they take it on holidays, and Good grief. they treat it like a dog. I'm pretty surprised. But I'm going to just, you'd expect this from me, Wallace, I, I think of the happiness that people get from the companionship that people get from cats and dogs, and compare that with the pleasure that people get from having birds, well... I think we're going nuts over something imaginary. There's a lot of New Zealand birds have probably turned the evolutionary corner. I think tui have anyway. They they can survive very well despite cats and, and dogs and other animals will too. And I think it's a shame that we're sacrificing or putting these constraints on people and making them feel embarrassed about having... Cats. Um, I, I'm not in in Gareth Morgan's camp at all. I think um, it's up to the birds to learn to cope.
2: Well, that's a, a good, good good response from a contrarian. Well, well, we got to return don't to that. We love birds. We, I mean, we get as much. I get as much joy out of wa- watching uh, the birds in my uh, area as I do from my uh, the magnificent grand dog that I walk uh, once a week or look after once a week. So. Birds give enormous pleasure um, in New Zealand. So you is... email
0: me the panel at RNZ.co.nz. We're going to return to this t- tomorrow. Um, uh, 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 Stephen Frank says birds are getting a free ride with us. Is Caitlin Smith welcome back? Caitlin, are, are you loud and clear now? Yes, I am. I'm not too
1: sure what
0: happened there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's just a practical question. I've never seen someone uh, walk a cat on a lead, how does it go? How how does it work?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it it might not be as common in New Zealand, but I can tell you right now that there's a massive community out there around the world that walk all their cats. So it's quite common when you start looking for it. So, I mean, walking a a cat is just like walking a dog. We've got a four-point harness that we clip up. And it's got a normal leash. Uh, it's not one of those extendable leaves like some dog owners have. Um, but it's just, you know, it's about a metre, metre and a half long leash. And you just clip it up and they walk with us. Well, sometimes it's more so they walk us. But um, <laughs> it's, yeah, very similar to how you set up a, a dog harness.
0: Oh wonderful uh, Well you, we've got the panel You might have heard them uh, here um, Sue is not a cat person Stephen is very much a cat person No I am
2: a cat person I'm just aware that cats are predators Of uh, our magnificent birds They're also predators of rats and mice
4: And I think that we could have a terrible yeah, but they're problem not going to, they're not, If, if they're
2: on a leash They're not going to kill cats no, and mice
4: I'm saying the, uh, people take them on a leash So they walk but I'm happy for them to be off leash And just tell Gareth Morgan forget wild. it I mean, Caitlin? New Zealand birds are a bit boring and brown. They, they've got a very nice song, but you very don't see them funny, enough. Uh, I think they Stephen. should put speakers, they should put speakers in the trees so oh, that people wow. think there's a bird.
0: The text machine just exploded. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> Why is that? It's just going off. It's
2: just (laughs) Stephen being a contrarian. He knows Um, how magnificent our native birds are.
0: Well, he doesn't, he doesn't, he thinks he's just just, so boring. Caitlin, are you a bird fan as well as a cat fan?
1: Look, don't get me wrong. I love all animals and I completely do understand that, you know, cats are, are going to go after wildlife and you know it's just in their nature and it's also the same with dogs dogs are going to go after things if not trained properly after and it, this is this is exactly why we started harness training them and it, our argument was not really to be like oh you know it's just, it should be allowed for cats, yeah. you know, why not give the rights to all animals?
0: Good on you Caitlin nice to have you on the program, Caitlin Smith who uh, puts her cat on leash and uh, Stephen, Frank, Sue Kishley, you've been both been wonderful today, thanks very much for your time uh, I'm Wallace once. Chapman uh, see you tomorrow 3.45 uh, Alexia Russell and David Cunliffe tomorrow, Lisa Owen is next with Checkpoint